I'm speaking to you now, no longer having dysmenorrhea, no longer having ovarian cysts, no longer having endometriosis and having a very peaceful, joyful experience of my period, which I feel is very affirming and empowering. Hello, it's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman Pod. Every week we do something to unwind a little taboo or invite more freedom some frozen or unexamined bit in our lives. And we're in the middle of a series on reverence. Reverence has a worldview, deep care, deep presence, deep attention, ritual, ceremony. I'm interviewing Christina Starr, and we're going to talk about women's cycles and honoring that. The show started out very female-focused, and that's because it was spun out a bit out of my company, Rosebud Woman, which is around removing body shame and sexual shame. But of course, there are many men listening now. So if you're inclined to tune out because it's not about a male body or a gender neutral concept, I hope you'll stick around because everybody's got a mama or a sister or a lover or someone who is in a female body. And it's my deep hope that you will care about the experience that women have in their embodiment and really understand how much we've had to adapt that to the dominant culture in order to get by. So I'm going to read to you just this first paragraph from Women's Cyclical Rituals, which Christina wrote. Is there anything more natural than the pulsing rhythm of cycles? Days, seasons, and tides determine the ebb and flow of all life, drawing periodicity from the orbits of the moon and earth, a system itself embedded in loops of infinite astronomic cycles. And the wonder of this cosmic dance is felt in every living body. We experience it as three main rhythms. Ultradian, cycles that are shorter than a day but longer than an hour. Circadian, regulating the sleep and wake cycle. And infradian, a cycle longer than a day. And those rhythms keep the biochemistry and actions of an organism attuned to the environment for optimum performance. This optimum is embodied and expressed in many ways as health, vitality, joy, and flow. Whether it's blood circulation, organ function, appetite, sleep, fertility, hormones, body temperature, energy movement through the body's meridians, nearly every facet of our biochemistry is dancing to the cosmic beat as we pulse along in our precious lives. When we oppose these rhythms, we inevitably cascade through symptoms of biological rhythm disorders, and these well-documented disorders have been shown to cause anxiety, depression, disconnection, inability to focus, and more. Think of a time when you were extremely sleep-deprived, if you want to relate it to your own experience. This is nature's way of nudging us back into her rhythm, and a reminder that there is a cost of moving out of sync. So that's the context in which we're talking about women's cyclical rituals, how we can honor them, and also how we can become activists, period activists, for a more gender-balanced and fair culture. Christina Starr is a consultant, educator, writer, researcher in topics that span space exploration, mindfulness, and much more. You'll learn how she became a menstrual activist in this podcast. Christina, you're a scientist by training. How did you become interested in cycle health and ritual? You know, you mentioned my training as a scientist, and I think that a fundamental quality of being a scientist, uh, a kind of mandatory character trait, if you will, is curiosity about natural phenomena. 
And this includes how the body works. Uh, having a female body comes with a kind of suite of complexities that have always been fascinating to me. And I felt like the more I knew, the more empowered I would be as a woman moving through the world. So I took it upon myself to learn the sort of physiological mechanisms through which the body worked. But, you know, you use the word health here and cycle health. And what got me most interested in my own cycle health really was losing it. You know, like many young women, I got on birth control uh, as a teenager and I took whatever the hormone in fashion was at the time, which was a shot called Depo-Provera. And that stopped me from having any sort of cycle. So every 12 weeks or so I would spot, but I, I didn't actually ovulate or menstruate for over six years as I was like growing into being a woman. And to be honest, I loved it because it gave me this competitive edge (laughs) or actually just kind of allowed me to compete in this entirely male-dominated academic pursuit of studying physics. And um, in these physics and chemistry classes at UC Berkeley, I was often the only woman in class. And so I needed any kind of edge that I could get to keep on swimming. And as I moved into my early 20s, the style of birth control that I was on went out of favor and was largely taken off the market, uh, which is actually a disturbing pattern with hormonal contraceptives, by the way, that they're on the market, they're everyone should take them, they put everyone on it. And then a few years later, all of these dangerous elements come out, they take it off and you see uh, you're now being marketed to to join the lawsuit for whatever horrible thing. So that's another issue. But I got off of it and decided to try to do a hormone-free birth control with my partner at the time and get a diaphragm. And not surprisingly, uh, I got pregnant. So at 23 in college, working full-time, um, I made the very, very difficult decision to get an abortion. And from that, there was a complication. And it's one of these things that it happens apparently, you know, one out of every hundred times there's a complication. In, and I had a hemorrhaging and um, then infection and what was supposed to be a simple procedure, although emotionally very difficult, was something that then turned into a cascade of health problems. And I didn't have a lot of um, emotional tools to process that while I was in school and uh, while I was focusing so hard on keeping myself sort of in this uh, highly competitive schedule. So as I moved through that, I then emerged and got on the orthotricycline low birth control pills. So I started having a cycle and the cycle was very painful. And then I evolved and started having, and and I had endometriosis and then I had chronic ovarian cysts and I moved through like taking too many painkillers. So I got a a stomach ulcer (laughs) from like, so I having these like secondary and tertiary issues and which my life, like I didn't have room for that in my life. It's, it's, 
is me and a bunch of men working on telescopes. And, uh, and I have to explain why I suddenly am incapacitated by menstrual cramps. And so I had to try to find the way to heal myself because the only thing that the, the Western medicine had to provide for me was literally to just get on more hormones or to surgically remove my entire reproductive system. Um, and which was something that, that honestly a lot of women do because this is, they go to doctors and that's what the doctors say is available. Sometimes it really is, you know, necessary. And, and a lot of times though, in my case, I was not willing to do that. So I began to look into other alternative methods for healing. And as I got deeper and deeper into my meditation and yoga practice, I began to just listen to my own body. And that's where, like, I used that curiosity, that scientific curiosity, and actually just said, look, th this doesn't seem like it's the way that our bodies are made. If this is something that literally half of the people on the planet have menstrual cycles for a big chunk of their lives, this should not be something that is so incapacitating. Like, what is out of alignment? What is not working? And so those questions drew me into a place of listening to other people and telling their stories, you know, uh, scanning the internet for whatever was on there to find supplements uh, through acupuncture and Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicine, and then also shamanic practices to get to the root of what was creating such serious health problems for me that were very much rooted just in my, my female body parts, if you will. You document cultures in your writing that have no menstrual pain or difficulties. Can you tell us about that? Right. And this is something that I discovered is like there's there's the anthropologists have documented this. And I cite that in the um, in the essay in reverence that when there are cultures where menstruation is given its own special space, when it's just like allowed and when there are cultures where um, power is shared. So either or either uh Gender power is shared, so so men and women have generally equal power, or there's time and space that is set aside for menstruation in a way that's not horribly shaming, but then there are not cramps, there are not PMS symptoms. PMS is something that is like, it's a Western conception. So the pain isn't only personal, it's collective. Yeah. And I think, though, that there's a way in which, you know, when we say like when you repress something, it comes out bigger in different ways. And that's what I was experiencing as I listened, as I was like, OK, pain is a message from the body. So like and this is a, a hypnotherapy method for pain, like decreasing pain anywhere in the body is just to focus on it. Just bring your attention there. But then to take it one step further, you say, okay, if pain's a message, what's it actually saying? And when I listen to it, it's saying, I'm not allowed to be a woman. It's not okay for me to have a cycle. It's not okay for me to not be the same and be steady every day all the time. 
it's not okay for me to take time off of being productive. It's not okay for me to hurt or to feel so big. It's not okay for me to prioritize love and relationship in my life over my career. And there were these sort of internalized narratives that I found that were like living in my womb. And as I sorted through those and I felt the pain and the repression, then I could start to release that and then healing would happen. So, you know, I'm speaking to you now, I'm no longer having dysmenorrhea, no longer having ovarian cysts, no longer having endometriosis and having a very peaceful, joyful experience of my period, which I feel is something saying like women in other cultures, then I've, I got to experience what I think is a more natural state, which is something that is very affirming um, and empowering and does not, you know, I feel, I can feel a little irritable before I start menstruating. And I just know that that is a part of the experience of um, the larger cycle at hand. You crafted and led a course on cycles for your true education platform. What prompted you to do that course? The primary demographic for true courses were modern Western adults who were drawn to the yoga and meditation movement um, as it came from East to West like a hundred years ago. And then it had been passed down since. And it's important to contextualize that because the quality of these lineages and the practices that they passed on is that they primarily came through a masculine lens of and male teachers. And they're taught with this sort of assumed steadiness that really only exists if you have a male body. So even though, you know, my classmates and then later on the students of True were uh, 80 to 90% female bodied, <laughs> the teachings and the practices didn't create or share any space for the cycles that we go through or for the differences in our bodies and in our energy bodies. Um, and so they were not um, empowering women and women were confused. And I watched these women all go through these like, what's wrong with me that I can't do this same practice every single day? You know, and so I made this course in order to fill in these blanks to empower and allow women to work with their cycles and to work with these internalized narratives. Like, because as we dissolve, the, we discover whatever stories we've absorbed in our own bodies and then imposed upon ourselves. Like the, the yoga and the mindfulness of it is starting to undo that and actually then create like uh, um, a routine for yourself that works with your own cycle. And that's more complicated. It's a more complex thing. It's just more complex to be a woman. But when you have this, like just throw off the shackles of thinking that you need to be doing the same thing every day and have a continually steady practice, then you can suddenly be free to discover who you are and um, how to contextualize everything that's coming at you with a whole different point of view of things being continually changing. Can you tell us about the course? So in the course, we go over like how to adapt these practices. So really the first half of it is this deconstruction of these cultural narratives of dominance culture and of what we tend to call the patriarchy, but I don't like to call it the patriarchy. I call it dominance culture because it's not just men 
and it's not in opposition to just women. It's a it's a cultural story that we're all hypnotized by that everyone suffers because of. This is a course I created for all genders. It's for uh, men to understand women and for women to understand themselves and for women to also understand men. It's like, this is something that's for everyone. So you've been kind of opening up to menstrual activism. Can you talk a little about menstrual shame and its costs? Absolutely. There's a lot of it that's a legacy. And I think that if any time if you, if you talk to teenagers and they talk about their period as being gross, that that's something that you you can tie that back into this this large multicultural spanning dominance culture shaming of femininity. So you know, menstrual shame is like anything that's that's not fully affirming when you like about having a period, thinking it's gross or dirty. You know, there there are all of these instances of taboo associated cross-culturally and anthropologically they like to tie taboo to anything that is of power when there's something very powerful in a society then there are all these taboos that are related to it and so then taboos then work their way through the culture and menstruation and especially menstrual blood is something that is in all cultures and it definitely is in western culture and it would be a misnomer to think that somehow we're we're not primitive in that way it's like we it's you know even up until fairly recently it was considered that western women that we would yeah melt like wilt crops that there was an actual chemical substance of and that that we emitted from our bodies that would wilt flowers and cause crops to to fail if we were near them. And this is this is these are Western conceptions. You know, this is coming about during the age of like natural philosophy and the turn of the century. And so, like these stories are always in which they they exclude women from society and they create some element of dirtiness. And it relates similarly to these mythologies that we have of like Eve being the one who uh, bit of the apple and sort of like got us thrown out of the garden of Eden, you know, and that there's a, there, there's a, tr- and that the first thing that they come comes from the knowledge is that shame, the body shame. I mean, how do you really walk the line between an honoring respite and a rejection as unclean? You know, how does the red tent not become an exile to sleeping outdoors in the cold and not touching anything in the house? I don't know. Anyway, how did the red tent go from ceremony to ostracization? Right. And then this is what's so interesting is that if you notice that the actions can stay the same, but it's the narrative that changed. So so we're talking about the power of story here and that there's a conception that happens that is just this this dominance culture is is this pernicious perspective that is hierarchical by its nature and so it's saying um so we go from the a woman having a particular action of just of withdrawing honoring herself by taking time to to rest rejuvenate listen take a break from chores and from serving others and that that can be something that is like wholly rejuvenating and good for her, good for her family, um, good for the community. 
And if you then just shift the story about it and say, okay, it's because she's dirty and there's something wrong with her. And if she were to, you know, she's not doing chores or cooking or something because there's something wrong with her and it would be bad if she did, that it's shifting this from that's good to if she doesn't do it, then it's bad for everyone. And that then there's a power in that. You see that power is then frightening. That power is frightening. And if you take that fear and let it seep in, then it starts to create, it's a it's a way to, to then have a mechanism to control the feminine. And so this line of thinking that evolve to take something that um, is very empowering and use it as a way of actually, like you said, exiling and creating submission. Uh, it's, it's deeply disturbing. Well, that's certainly a lot of fuel for menstrual activism. We seem to know so little. Can we back up and can you remind us of the basic rhythm of a cycle? Yeah, well, it's interesting because there's two ways to discuss this, right? There's a purely medical standpoint, and then there's also an experiential standpoint. Um, I think it's really important that everyone is empowered with the knowledge of how their bodies work physically and what elements go into their function. You know, basic sex education stuff, which unfortunately is not as ubiquitous as, as it should be. But um, no matter what our sex or our gender, we should understand the basic physiology and how it varies between individuals and the greater divides like sex, right? There's a very natural variability. We're not all the same. When we understand ourselves and other people around us, then we can get along better and make society work better for everyone. So I can explain, you know, how hormones cycle throughout a month and that that governs how a growth of like thick blood and nutrient rich tissue lining in the uterus grows during the follicular phase. And then how ovulation is the release of an ova from the ovary, which then travels down the fallopian tube into the uterus and during the luteal phase. Then once it reaches the uterus, if it's been fertilized, it'll implant and begin to grow using all those nutrient rich tissues as like a feeding bed. And if the ovum has not been fertilized, then it'll pass through the uterine lining, um, the lining uh, on the wall will then shed, leaving the body through the vagina, right? This is the menses. So anyone who doesn't know that really well, and that that was like, whoa, that was a lot of words and fast, you need to spend like an hour on Google, just an hour. You can watch like YouTube videos. Um, TEDx has a number of them. Uh, learn about the way hormones in the cycle work for men and women. You know, we need to understand each other. This isn't something that women just need to know about themselves. This is something everybody needs to know about the way that the bodies work, right? However, the other perspective that I can talk about is the experience of it, because I don't experience my ovum traveling through my fallopian tube or my uterine lining growing. You know, it's just like, where, ohm. This is, it's so, it's just not really relevant for me to think, well, oh, what's the thickness of my uterine lining right now? <laughs> so the rhythm of the cycle through the personal experience is something that then needs to be a lot more qualitative. And, and so we use the metaphor of talking about it as it moves through seasons. 
then you can use like any good metaphor, you can use the understanding of a larger picture to, to illuminate um, more elements of that, that you're trying to describe, right? So then menstruation is like winter. Um, and so it's this time of solitude, quiet reflection, dreaming and creating, getting like ideas and visions, um, cleansing and releasing the past. And then uh, we come into springtime, right? Which is the follicular phase. We uh, are like, it's an emergence. We slowly increase our activity. We slowly begin to put these ideas that we've had into action and to like get the fields ready for planting, right? And start to nourish those. And then we come into summer, which is our ovulation time. And it's really big and playful and there's lots of output uh, we flirt more, like we're more flirtatious and um, our speaking ability becomes more acute. We become very socialized and we have more energy and are super productive. But like this is when we kind of, it's easiest to play this part of superwoman is during our ovulation period. Uh, and then in the fall, like in the autumn time, it's more of like a solid work ethic and a nesting um, it's a really good time to get uh, for exercising. We just have a lot of strength in that capacity. We often feel like we're taking on more home, like home projects because there's a feeling of nesting during the autumn time. And at home, it's like because we're getting ready for that winter. It's also a time that we often associate with PMS because there's a kind of preemptive cleansing where like whatever is getting ready to be released during the winter, whatever is getting ready to be buried, like those leaves are, are coming off the trees. They're starting to pull in and die. So with that metaphor, it's like that can be a little uncomfortable sometimes. But if you've got a perspective to just turn towards it and say, okay, this is just going to be a little uncomfortable for a couple of days and it's nobody else's fault, <laughs> then, um, then you can move into the winter period. So that's like from a more experiential point of view that we move through these seasons um, all within our month uh, and however particularly long our month is, you know, anywhere from uh, 20 to, to, to 40 days uh, as a menstrual cycle for a woman. Yeah, yeah. Flashcards are coming. So much information. <laughs> What are your suggestions for honoring and working with cycles? Right. So when it comes to like honoring and working with the cycles, uh, you know, it first, first and foremost is always awareness. So doing whatever you can to track yourself and your cycles is something that it's like the first practice. And that's the only way that you're going to know when to mark these things, right? So when we start um, bleeding, that's the first, that's usually, it's like day one of our cycle. That's the most obvious thing that's like, you're not going to miss that as a marker. Although some, some people do have, like it fades in. It's not as like super, super abrupt. It can fade in. But when, when you start then actually doing whatever you can to carve out some time to be alone and quiet and without distraction or the need or obligation. So that's like the, I'd say the most important thing that you can start to do that anyone can start to do. And then, you know, when it comes to other parts of the cycle, um, you honor them by trying to flow with them. 
so, you know, I mentioned some of the qualities of the seasons and it's like, you don't try to harvest in the spring. There's nothing to harvest. You know, once you've tracked yourself and you start to get a, like, and go through enough cycles where you're actually really honoring the downtime in the winter and then watching yourself bloom through your seasons, then you can start to plan around that. So you can start to plan um, to have presentations or social events during ovulation. You can start to plan your exercise routine, which is not going to be the same thing every day by any means. You can start to plan that around this. You can even start to plan your diet around this. So that's the sort of the larger arching pictures. And then, you know, in the book, we go into precise rituals that truly like mark the beginning and practices um, that you can do to uh, get the absolute most out of your own natural body. You know, we're just talking about how to optimize living with and being embedded in a cycle. There's also another form of birth control, which has actually been FDA approved. And it's just, it's an app called Natural Cycles. And essentially what it is, is it's data driven rhythm method, where you take your temperature, your resting temperature every morning, and the algorithm, which was coincidentally created by a woman physicist, um, then under, like it works with tracking your cycle so that you can predict exactly when you are fertile. And so then you need to practice whatever form of birth control you want to, whether it be the gel or a condom in just those few days and the rest of the time you're, you're open. And so it's 99 plus percent effective. And this is just the same as bringing total awareness to where we are in our cycle. Um, just with, uh, with help of, of data of analyzing that data. Women are very busy. How can this fit into a life full of work and family obligations? And that's actually, I think, my mission here is that I see birth control as one of the greatest supports for feminism. You know, it is what has allowed women to get as far as we have and to have the positions of power that we have right now. But in in many ways, that has been at the expense of what it means to be a woman, that there's a way in which like suppression of our cycles, the same way that I personally suppressed my cycle for six years to compete in academia, you know, that the this wave of feminism that is saying we need to be like men and compete with men on their terms is what is fading out. And what's being replaced with it is, as you say, this um, self-care and self-affirming this discovery of, of what it means to actually be a woman and then have power in society on those terms. Being a woman means that we have a cycle and we menstruate and we our bodies are different. We are different, period, like fundamentally. What is menstrual activism? What are the kinds of things people are lobbying for anyway? Can you define that? So fundamentally, menstrual activism is feminism. It's a part of that continually like forward pushing movement. And uh, the leading edge 
of that is this removal of the shame and taboo and censorship from our cultural narrative and the way that we talk about it or choose not to talk about our natural biological rhythms and the way that we do or don't make space for that in the way that our society is built, the way that our family operates, you know, the way that we plan our lives. So, you know, this is something that half the world population experiences in their lifetime. You can actually see the evolution of menstrual activism through advertising. And I think it's really interesting to see that, you know, there's been a big explosion in uh, in the advertising be- in the last few years and in menstrual activism because we are seeing this new generation of feminists and you can get products for um, like flex discs, which is about like advertising mess-free period sex and um, period underwear from thinks and cups and the Cora necklace, which is a um, spare tampon that you keep on a necklace in a, like a beautiful golden container that also is like a B corporation that gives funding to help a young girl in Africa have menstrual products for a whole year. And so a lot of menstrual activism focuses on just like letting the conversation be out there to be like, this is a thing. And we're moving away from pouring blue liquid on two maxi pads in the same commercial (laughs) into actually talking openly about what it's like to menstruate. And like you said, um, running marathons with menstrual blood moving down our legs and um, having these bigger pieces that are saying, this is a part of what it means to be a woman and we're not going to hide it anymore. But there's also things that we're fighting for on a cultural level, which is to have paid leave uh, for women during those times. So how do we fit something like a concept of a red tent or a menstrual hut into a society where women are working and where there is equal rights. And if we look at cultures in anthropologically where the power is shared, then what we see is that the menstrual hut is actually right in the middle of the town. It's not on the outskirts and on the edge anymore. It's just right there. And people are able to kind of be in like hiding in the hut if they want to, or they can be out and like be available. Like women are just allowed to do what they want to do and they can take their time off and hang out there if they want or not. And it's an option for them and it doesn't interfere with society. So how can we create that? Well, potentially having paid leave, you know, Taiwan is a nation where they have three days extra paid leave per year. That's just menstrual leave. Right now, I would like to get that to be something closer to a couple of days off (laughs) a month paid leave, but also just moving towards having tax free period products. The fact that fact that we have to pay taxes, sales tax on period products is something that is fought against uh, on the edge of, of this menstrual activism movement and having period products in general just be free. Because when women are in economically disadvantaged situations, uh, they do not have access to these. And so they will skip school. That's just basically one of the issues that exists in the developing world. And anywhere where there's poverty is that um, young girls will skip school and often drop out of school 
if because they just don't have a way to to go and uh, have the products that they need to continue to participate during those days. So there's a lot of activism for trying to get products to these women in which is just I think it's a it's a fine line because we're trying to provide resources for women to be empowered but at the same time when you just say we want you to like here's a product to make sure that you fit into society <laughs> in this male dominant society so that you can do the same thing every day um like there's a there's, this is like a double-edged sword situation here where it's not clean and clear how to move forward with that. I think that everyone should be able to have access to hygiene products, period, you know? But then what is the messaging that we're including with that? If you could have one wish for women worldwide, what would it be? My wish for the women of the world is that we can envision and share that vision for what we want the future of the of the world to look like that that's it that we full, feel empowered enough to start to actually really focus on what a future looks like where women and men and all genders have equal power and because that's something that is like I don't have that answer. And I don't think any one person does. And that's what the paradigm shift is, is that we're moving into a collective way of being that is organic and that can change quickly and be adaptable because it includes, it includes letting people be who they are and add their perspective into that. So my vision of the future is one where everyone is able to um, come from a place of like, self-knowledge and awareness and having those tools and then feeling empowered to say, I need this. And I see from my perspective that this would be good for the group and that we can do that on all levels from our individual social groups and our families uh, and to government and the UN and moving into Mars and the moon colonies, that this is something that is included. All right. Well, thank you so much. I super enjoy talking to you as always. Well, it's always wonderful to talk to you, Christine. And then also very happy to be sharing this with a wider audience. And I'm working on a book right now, which is on this topic on menstrual activism and deconstructing the cultural narratives and visioning for a new way of being in the world. So I'm excited to put this out there in the world in a big way. And just really hoping that the women who are out there and men and people of all genders and all menstruating people and all can learn to embrace a new way of being, which is much more life affirming and in touch with the natural cycles of the world that we exist in. There's a lot to this, right? A lot more than we've been exposed to, generally speaking. If you'd like to read the rest of Christina's Insights on Cycles, or the rituals that she's suggesting for us to implement in our own lives, please come to rosewoman.com and find the reverence book and pre-order a physical copy. You can also get it on Kindle, just released today. There's so much beauty in this book, whether it's the layouts by Colleen, the original photography by Samantha, 
or the rituals from Lillian, who you heard from last week, or Kathleen Joy on the Empty Nest, or so many more beautiful people who've really found that slowing down, seeing themselves as nature, breathing into life, making meaning, moving emotions, both joyful and sorrowful through the system, is a way to really digest and experience things more fully. So I hope you'll enjoy this book. We worked pretty hard on getting it done. And of course, come find me at the.rose.woman on Instagram. And if you know someone who would love this episode, you can support me and this work by stopping right now and taking the link and texting it to that person, maybe with a heart or two. Have a wonderful day. Ride your cycles in joy, whether you're a man or a woman or some in between. You are whole, you are perfect, you are complete, you are nature. Take care.